Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. After serving one term as dean of the Peter Drucker School of Management at Claremont College, and also having served as dean of the graduate program at Claremont, in July of 2020, during the grips of COVID, Jenny Durek was named Dean of the Farmer's School of Business at Miami University, located in Oxford, Ohio. As a decorated scholar in marketing, Jenny, with her global perspective, brings insight into the challenges of deaning, both understanding the common issues and influences we face as academic leaders, as well as appreciating and respecting our unique environments and circumstances. In this episode, Jenny provides helpful, if not critical, advice she has gained over her years of experience as an academic leader starting two major deanships and overseeing graduate education. Her advice includes some of the early tasks she feels all new deans should embrace as they begin their appointment and key observations she has obtained over time. We're here today with Jenny Dara, who's the uh, Farmer School of Business at Miami University uh, Dean. Um, Jenny, we're delighted to have you. Um, and looking forward to our conversation with you. Great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So beyond your current role at Farmer, you've brought a very interesting background, which sort of leads us to be able to go in a number of directions of this conversation. But I'm just sort of open with the, you know, the uniqueness of being a two-time dean at two very different institutions. I mean, you came from uh, Rucker School of Management at the Claremont uh, Graduate University, very uh, recognized international brand, graduate-only private university, to Miami University, which is a large, medium-large public university in which the undergraduate population is significantly large and the school is strong. Those are strange bedfellows, if you will, in terms of a breadth of experience you've had. So maybe just to begin, give us a sense of sort of how this holds together and sort of your own narrative of leadership across interesting institutions, particularly having been educated in New Zealand. I, yeah, I'm a, I am a, a, unusual career path. It's certainly not a square peg, square hole trajectory. And to your point, Ken, you know, I did start out in New Zealand. My qualifications are from New Zealand. I did run an entrepreneurship program in New Zealand at a comprehensive university that would be more like an R1 in the United States terminology. I came to the States in 2004 to the Drucker School, and we could probably fill the interview, the, the podcast, and about the reasons why. But, you know, it was a very different experience even there, going from a large state-run university in New Zealand to a very small private liberal arts college. But a tremendous gift and something I'm always most grateful for. A, that I got to work at the Drucker School. I got to meet Peter Drucker. I had the privilege of meeting him. But I eventually rose up to be the dean. And and the, the challenges of leadership, I think, are similar no matter where you are. But in this particular context, 
our greatest challenge was that Peter Drucker died. In 2005, he died. And so when you're running a school named after uh, not a donor, but a thinker, the challenge there was what do you do with the brand and how do you peel back the layers of the brand to get to the brand essence to make sure the brand is relevant to today's audiences. So that was something that we all worked on together and were excited about. And then I got to a point in my career after 16 years at the Drucker School that I just, I, I felt it was time to, to do something different and to test my leadership out in a different context. And, and, and I, here I am at the Miami School, as, at the Pharma School, sorry, at Miami University. And as you've rightly pointed out, couldn't be more opposite. I think when I look back to the transition, I am a COVID dean. I did come in on July 1, 2020. So that was interesting. I'm grateful for Zoom because at least I could learn people's names because everyone's names are on Zoom. But I think the most difficult part I found was the acronyms and, and the familiarity people have with their own system, the expectation that what Biz 184 is, and or in fact, I'm not even sure that's a course, but that, that, that you know what these different courses are and the, the sequence of how things happen and what the policies are for this particular university. So that, that was probably the most challenging part. There's an assumption that you somehow should know because everybody else does. But I think outside of that, when you think of what a dean does, we're setting vision, we're setting strategy, we're external, we're networking with external constituencies and really making sure the brand shines on the national and international front. That, that's the same. So, so in that sense, there's a lot of similarity, but there were certainly some differences. If you look at your first three months in the job, and we're, we have a lot of new deans who are listening to us today, you know, how do you, how do you kind of synthesize what's going on within the school each one of those schools they are so different how do you how do you pick it apart and what do you use as a trick to learn exactly what the strategies have been and what the, the potholes and speed bumps are and 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 really what you've identified i mean it's they are different and to get to the acronyms is one thing mm -hmm. but to also get to just the the people and kind of where the bodies are buried and those types of things you know how do you go about that I think that that's a really good question. And when I look back, because remember, I became a dean at Drucker and I was an internal hire. So I knew yeah. the history enough. I certainly knew the 16 years of alumni that I taught. But but making that transition when you don't know, and it's a very unfamiliar system. So I've got a, a few thoughts that I, I, I thought I'd share. I mean, on the way in, I'm big on data. And I think at a minimum, get hold of an AACSB report and have a, if the school is accredited and have a look at that. And that, that I mean... And know the standards, make sure you're familiar with the standards, but I think that's really important. I I like to, I'm data driven, I like to look at the data and what the data is telling me, what trends are happening over time and see if I can see what's going on. I also think you, in this environment, especially, you absolutely have to understand the numbers, the finances. And that's something that I think is tricky. I've worked in different places. I'm on accrediting committees for AACSB. And the budgets aren't always what they seem. And so I think when I'm, when you talk to people, I think asking questions around the budgets, around the different ways that revenue is profiled and how revenue is shared. And I think RCM, many of us have RCM. I certainly work with RCM now. But you've got to remember that RCM was set up at a time to reward entrepreneurial behavior and at a time that universities were actually making money. 
And a lot of universities are financially constrained. And so now there are hybrid versions of it. And just to truly understand, I think I'd also, with hindsight, something I wish I'd done here at Miami, I wish I'd talked to the admissions people and asked them for the presentation they give prospective students so I could hear how the brand was articulated to the market. That would have been quite helpful. And I wish I'd sat down with an advisor to to advise me as if I was a student so I could understand the pathway through. And that would have been quite helpful as well. Uh, I also, one thing I have learned, I mean, you've got to listen. You've got to really listen and believe. Like Miami, for example, has been around for 200 years. It'll be around for another 200 years. And so there's a path history that goes with these places. And you're coming in as a dean with an expectation that you do write, help write the next chapter of the institution, but you're not there to, to, to rewrite its history or, or fundamentally change the nature of the school. So I think really understanding the essence of what the school is. And I, I certainly could go on with a longer list, but I'll, I'll pause there for a minute. But I think, and then just getting to know the other deans and making sure you un, and work well with the other deans. And I think we're in an environment right now where working across subject boundaries, working across divisions and colleges and schools is really important and figuring out a way to partner, especially as a business school dean, because that's where the, a lot of the growth and opportunity is for the university. Jenny, we know you you uh, you think quickly, you speak quickly, you you populate the conversation with lots of ideas. How have you used your um, marketing expertise, your strategic expertise, to match with sort of the cadence and pace mm. of change in an institution? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna. So answer part of part of what you said that you didn't ask the question of around pace and cadence. I'll answer that part and then I'll talk about marketing. Yeah. I do move fast and 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 Ken knows me well. When you think of strategy, there's a cadence to strategy. It's about visioning, it's about planning, and it's about implementation. And I and as a dean, you're the immortal vision, and you've got a team of people around you who then will plan and, and maybe other people who'll be there with implementation. So one of the things I've learned is to pace that. And in higher education, it can take two to three years between coming up with an idea for a new program and it being in market. And while I, as a dean, might be on to the next idea, I've still got a, a team of people who are implementing the idea that we developed two or three years ago. And I remember one of my so my, my directors at Drucker had the, this whiteboard with a lot of things going on, and he said, can we have a conversation about the whiteboard? <laughs> and I said, okay, let, let, let's talk about that. There's just too many things. <laughs> and so, so that, that's something I've really learned is, is around cadence and pace and, and also being willing to walk away from ideas because it may not be the right idea at this time, but just to store it away for a time in the future. So now let me properly answer your question, Ken. As a marketing person, I'm trained to look at the market, to look at the outside, to understand who are our customers and what do they value or similar language, where to play and how to win. And I think that's been hugely beneficial for me as a dean and, and as a university leader, to be perfectly honest, because we can't talk in an echo chamber. We've got to be looking at the market, understanding the signals that the market's giving us and being willing to place our bets and, and change. And I think when you look at universities today, I'm always grateful I'm not the dean of an arts and humanities school, for example, because of declining enrollment there. 
But we do have to be market-facing. And when you look at institutions, in fact, I went on a walking tour of Cambridge University in the summer, and just to hear their rich history over centuries around how they've evolved from, I think it was religion, law, and medicine, to truly global and, and interdisciplinary. And we as institutions have to be willing to evolve and and respond to market changes. And I think that's quite hard for universities to do, but I think people with training and marketing, such as my own training, I think that's naturally how we we gravitate in our thinking. I want to go back to a very salient point that you made talking about those early times and just ask you to go a little bit deeper in this, and that is the fact that the business school is looked upon by the other colleges at the university as kind of a pain. I mean, you raise more money than the rest of them do. You've got more active alumni than the rest of them do. You don't have declining enrollment like so many of them do. And yet, on the other hand, if there's a way to endear yourself to every single one of them, I always tried to, at USC, try to make the business school the hub where I did a program with every single other school just to make sure we were part of the deal. Um, now, how, how did you face that? Did you, you walk in and and you're, you're the newbie. You've got a lot of deans that have been sitting there for a long time, and you walk in with, a, oh, I got all these great ideas. How do you get yourself across so that they don't just go, oh, God, who is this? And uh, set that up. You, you are right. I mean, the business school is the enemy often on campuses, and, and you forgot the part that we often get paid more than other faculty as well. Yeah, you're so. right. Forgot about that. Good point. <laughs> and you have nicer offices. Oh, yeah. And allegedly, yeah. we've got gold trash bins here at the farm right. school. Allegedly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's yep. right. That's what I heard from some of my students. But but you raised a really good point. So we had a, a phenomenal retreat. In fact, we've had a couple of retreats in the last two weeks. And our president gave us a briefing to come up with was three parts how should he invest and in, where should he invest in the university where should he invest in our school and then what our specific goals are and so I, I thought about how am I going to present myself in that audience to the president's executive cabinet and also other deans, knowing that I've got a full house. I, I don't have any capacity to grow the business school at this time unless I hire more faculty. And we have a few other constraints as well. So, so the question is, what do I do? What do I do with that data point that I don't have much capacity if, if a student wants to take a course in marketing and they're, say, an English major, there probably isn't much room for them to take a course in marketing unless they declare a minor or a major in marketing. That's kind of the pathway. In. And that's not ideal. And so I took the stance of um, the fact that we are a full house, but my request of the president was invest in the business school so that we can partner with and support other programs. So, so again, we've got a, a, a long list of ideas we're working through and we'll pick our winners out of that. But just to give you a sense, we've seen a, more than double the number of students coming in to do a general business minor. So these are non-business school students. We've seen a huge uptick in that. And so we're looking at ways we can add capacity. So a student in arts and sciences, for example, could take a general business minor. That would be an A. Other options, and these are our own internal languages and, and blockages, if you will, but how do we set up co-majors? So a student could co-major and say human capital management alongside their psychology major. So looking at those partnerships. So bucket A is how do we add capacity to the farmer's school right now so that we can allow more non-business students in? And then the second thing we're looking at, as we should be, is how do we build transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary degrees that would be some merging between 
I'm making it up now, engineering and business or, or psychology and business that makes sense to the market. So it comes right back to a question you asked before to be very market facing about where the jobs are, where the opportunities are, reverse engineer that and say, now what makes sense if we come up with these combined degrees? So that was the conversation we had. And I'm pleased to report that it was received very, very well by the deans. I, we, I try and play well with others. I think I've achieved that mostly. <laughs> and, and look at how do we collaborate? How do we partner so that the overall pie grows so that we see some uptick in demand? for arts and science programs, especially the arts and humanities in particular, and how do we provide that kind of support to other students in a meaningful way? And that that's what we're doing right now, and I'm quite excited about the conversations we've had subsequent to that retreat in terms of what might be able to be achieved. Jenny, I've been impressed uh, with your comment in a recent conversation about meeting the students where they are. Um, we'd be curious to hear, how do you know where they are? How do you find, what, what techniques do you to use to find where they are? Yeah, yeah. thanks for that question, Ken. It's, it's a challenge right now. I think we, we, we read the same press and we know that students are not well prepared for college and, and COVID's a thing. And then we look at Gen Z. I made it, and then I support my faculty too, and I hear stories about how things have changed in the classroom, how things have changed with respect to how they interact with students and and it concerns me. And so at the beginning of last fall, we actually had a student uh, sign a statement of student expectations and everyone was really excited by it. It was basic things like reminding them to show up on time, come to class prepared, uh, participate in class discussion, things that you would expect that people should know. But I think in the passage of COVID, some things were lost. And so we were excited about that. And then we got to spring and we found that, that there was a, a little fall off the cliff moment <laughs> that, that the students were showing up poorly and, and the, the faculty were quite concerned. So what I did was I actually led a number of different initiatives where we had a, a number of our faculty had held focus groups in their classes at different levels. So first year right through up to senior levels. Um, our change management class actually took on an as, as assignment about how to what changes do we need to implement to affect deeper student engagement. I had some listening sessions with faculty because I wanted them especially to know that I support them, that I'm listening, that I'm here to try and help. And we we made this as a topic for our uh, retreat with my senior leadership team. And it's I don't in effect just to pause on that one. And we also invited a marriage and family counselor and to speak to our senior leadership team mm. so that we could understand some of the social dynamics that were happening. For example, even the parenting dynamic that's happening. So for example, one data point that just really captured my imagination is that more people are now going to therapy to get help in case things go wrong. And I thought I hadn't I hadn't thought about that because we've certainly got a lot of demand for mental health services at the moment. So a lot of worrying about did, did my, my did my child miss out on too much? How can I protect them through the college experience? And all of this together, we're not really helping our students if we can't find ways to engage them and re-engage them. And our brand promise at the Pharma School is that we graduate beyond ready leaders who can add value to any organization from day one. And we want to live up to that promise. So what do we need to do to, to make sure students graduate as they should be? Not almost beyond ready, but beyond ready. So that's been a lot of our focus. And I did write something in Inside Higher Ed about it, about treating students as knowledge workers and, and listening to the students, so to your point, one of the things we heard was that 
students love to work on experiential client projects. They don't like to be in class. They don't like to listen to lectures. They want to see the connection between what they're being taught today and what they might need to do in week five. And you've got to make those connections a lot more explicit for our students. Coming back to the consulting projects piece, they would rather advise each other and have a client advise them. And then what is the role of faculty? So we're, we're, we're challenging ourselves on all of these different dimensions and really encouraging ourselves to look at what we're doing and, and how do we improve what we do so that we have highly engaged students and they end up graduating well. You know, speaking of graduating, you sit in a small town where you don't have all the major corporations and the major employers and the, the people that are, that are hiring your students. How do you incentivize those companies to come your way, to tell them about your students, is there anything you do differently than, say, you're sitting at in Chicago or sitting in Pittsburgh or sitting in St. Louis or Los Angeles or San Francisco? What do you do when you're not in a major urban environment to make sure that your students get the right look from the, the companies, get the internship opportunities from the companies to start with, and, and even talking about the projects? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, how do you how do you go about doing that just to make sure that that you're giving them the best opportunity to get the best jobs they can? So you've clearly been to Oxford, Ohio, and you know that we're an hour from anywhere, and there's a lot of cornfields and soy fields between us and any other big population. But we, we have many advantages. We have an incredibly engaged alumni. People who come here have an, a remarkable student experience. They make friends for life. They do business together. They look after each other. And and we, we have this revolving door of alumni coming back and wanting to speak, to mentor, to provide projects. So, so it's actually simply than you think. We have about 400 employers come on campus to hire our students. All of our students have at least one internship and more than half have two. And we're actually top 10 in the country for student outcomes using Poets and Quants undergrad among public undergrad business schools. So we have really good outcomes. And I think there's something really special about a type of student who comes to Miami. They are smart. They sort of check all the boxes on test scores and so forth. But there's a type of student who's really happy to come here to a highly residential campus and, and make friends and network and do well. And these students, that they're, they're incredible. They're multidimensional. And we do have employers lining up to hire them. And in fact, I, I ran some numbers recently. About a third of our graduates get jobs in consulting firms or in consulting-like roles within major corporations. And I think that speaks to the, the quality of the student who comes in. But as a dean, to your, to your question, it's something I pay really close attention to because we know that that outcomes, value, return on investment are incredibly important criteria for our families and our students, and we do pay close attention to that. It's always easy to open programs, and in this world of uh, you know more highly curated student experiences, there's probably more demand for programs. How have you had to, or have you had the um, the opportunity, if you will? to sunset programs and how do you how do you say no or how do you say enough yeah we're lucky in a business school for us that's less of a problem for us than it is for other parts of the university 
So 70% of all students take one of 30 majors at Miami and we've got, and pretty well all of them are, are business majors. So we've been fortunate in that regard. I think where we've had the bigger need to pivot and change has been in the graduate space. So we do have a graduate portfolio and we do have an MBA that's on ground and we now have an online MBA. Had we not put the online MBA and we may not have an on ground MBA. And now we've actually blended those two together. So it's more of a hybrid model where people, if you sign up for marketing on ground, you stay with marketing on ground for that semester, but you can move between modalities. And so we've brought our enrollment back to where it was in 2015 for, for MBA. And that's been, that's been a challenge as many pro, I mean, abandonment to your point is really difficult. The other one that we've struggled with a little bit in full disclosure, we've got a, a essentially a Masters of Arts and Management and we call it the Masters of Science and Management. So we've got that degree and we've struggled a bit to figure out who the market is for that. Again, remembering our location, the market should be a three plus one or a four plus one student, a non-business student who takes that program and and, and finishes well because they've now got a, a, a different set of opportunities. But just finding that and getting that to stick has been quite difficult. So we've actually paused the online version of that and we're just staying with the on ground and we're we're trying to modify it a little bit longer just to reposition a little bit and figure out some tracks within it. For example, sales makes sense as a track. Human resource management might make sense as another track. Wealth management might make sense as another track. And be really specific to job outcomes and we've said if, if we can't make these programs work, we have to be bold and willing to sunset them, pause them, reposition them, because you can't, in this environment we're in, we can't keep throwing resources at things that just aren't working. I think that's a big problem that universities in general have is that they just, I, I'm an old retail guy, and we we just always looked at it like, take your markdowns, take your markdowns and get rid of it. And universities, unfortunately, just don't yes. do that. We're so bad at it as universities. And I think part of it, when you look at our labor structure too, we have this very rigid fixed cost called labor. And it's hard to reallocate resources. I was reading a McKinsey report recently about firms that have been agile and willing to reallocate resources outperform those who don't. And they, of course, quote the, the how much they outperform. But universities are slow to respond and we have fixed costs that are hard to move. And if I look at our processes, and I'm sure that many who listen to this podcast will, will look at their own policies and look at what is required to shut programs down, it's a long, long process. And, and with good reason, faculty are given some time to speak into their future, but it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I think that's one of the challenges that universities have that are very encumbered by a lot of history to figure out how to make that work and how to reallocate resources. And that a lot of ties back into the, the issues that everyone's talking about today, and that is rising tuition. If they were to cut the dead branches, they might be able to cut some costs, might be able to keep the tuitions in line. But that's a whole other story, so I won't go into that one. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really difficult, and it's something, it, look, I'm not, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn yeah. to say we have those discussions here, and I'm sure that most other universities do when the business school is growing and other parts are not. At what point, what do you do? I mean, there's a finite pool of resources, probably a declining pool yeah. because of the discounting that goes on to bring in a class at the moment. Well, this sort of gets to the pace and cadence part of our question, which is, you know, sometimes you probably have to hear yourself saying the same thing over and over again to, uh, in order to uh, meet the timeline. 
And and I'm I'm a pragmatist in, in how I approach my role and and there might be something you think makes perfect sense today and you can't understand why it doesn't get accepted. But you just sometimes you just have to pause and park the ideas and move on to something else. You 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 realize in these roles you can't some things don't always work the way you want it to work and you've just got to be really patient and play play the long game. Yeah, good point. Great. Well, this has been terrific. This has been great. Really appreciate your thoughts on this. I I actually have a have a nephew who has two degrees from Miami, and he is he's a undergrad accounting and a Mac guy, and he's then he went off got his CPA his MBA. The guy's got more initials after his name than anybody I know, and he's a CFO of a company in Colorado, and absolutely loved that experience that he had at Miami. Just loved it. Great. My job easy. I've got yeah. incredible alumni, deeply engaged, yeah. who without question can attribute their success to the experience and the education they had at Miami. It makes my job easy. It's a gift. Thank you, Jenny. Jim, that was a fun and informative conversation. What do you think? I love the fact that she comes out of a very different educational system. She analyzes the American higher ed system in two different types of institutions and is successful in both, um, coming with a completely different headset. This nonlinear, nonlinear career that she talks about having is indeed something that served her very, very well in the way she's approaching it. And, you know, she's got, the Drucker School that's in a big metropolitan area. She's got Farmer that's in a very small rural area. She's having to adjust to that, and yet she does it with such aplomb. She's just very, very professional in the way she approaches things. I think that uh, we're going to see that school really shine under her in so many respects. She's got great ideas. She's an innovator. I, I really enjoyed listening to what she had to say in her thought process. Yeah, it struck me. She's a very quick study. I mean, to be able to make those sort of nimble, agile kind of adjustments and to set herself up, set an institution up for improvement, really notable. Yeah, very much so. And very uh, the fact that she wants to partner with all the other colleges within the university and and wants to be a good team player, but at the same time understands that that they're suffering from declining enrollments. She's not suffering from declining enrollments, but she still wants to be the team player because if the university isn't a university, it's not going to work. And uh, all of a sudden the business school gets a bigger percentage of student population, almost becomes a trade tech. And she does not want that to happen because she wants that to be a great university, which it is. And and it's going to be around for another 200 years, like she said. So I really commend her for the great job she's doing and, and applaud what she's doing. Yeah, I really liked her ability to also focus in on the students and student experience and a sense of meeting them where they are, really recognizing that that's where the entire enterprise actually starts. Uh, that's a market, that's a market sensitivity that we don't often see. Very much so, and especially with a changing population. The student population is so very different yeah. than it was five, 10 years ago. And she recognizes that and tries to figure out how do we accommodate that. Like she says, we have a lot of students that are looking for mental health support. We're, now we have students that don't even have mental health problems, but they're looking for support just in case they do. 
So getting out in front of it, she's she's in front of the situation yeah. and very sensitive, as you say, to the student, because that's really where it all starts. Right. Very good. Well done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show. 